Hello and welcome to the fourth Aussie Floyd podcast. I'm David Dominic Fowler and in this podcast I've been lucky enough to get some time with physics professor Philip Moriarty from the University of Nottingham. Well, alongside his main work at Nottingham, um, he presents videos on the hugely popular YouTube channels 60 Symbols and Numberphile. I personally love these channels and I've watched them for years. He's also recently released his first book, which talks about the relationship between the uncertainty principle and heavy metal, which I think is an absolutely wonderful read. I'm about three quarters of the way through it. But I do warn you, this podcast starts off reasonably technical. Um, but around 32 minutes in, it becomes a lot less technical. Uh, we chat about his YouTube videos and also about how our drummer, the Aussie Floyd drummer, Bonnie, is going to be in a published physics paper. But before that, I'd just like to say... If you like this podcast or any of our previous podcasts, please share them and subscribe to us on YouTube, iTunes, or sign up to our mailing list at aussiefloyd.com. But enough of this, I bring you Professor Philip Moriarty. You can play a sample that sounds like absolute... And then you're told what's actually what the, what the voice is saying, and then you go back and listen to it, and suddenly it's crystal clear. It's fun to watch... First year and second year and third year and fourth year students wander into a lecture theatre in a variety of metal t-shirts. Hello and welcome to the Aussie Floyd podcast. I'm here with Philip Moriarty. Phil, hello. Hi Dave, how are you doing? It's a pleasure to be here. Right, I should uh, say Phil is a professor of physics at Nottingham University and he presents on 60 Symbols and on Computerphile. Um Sort of big hero of mine. I've been watching him for years, and it's a pleasure to have you here in my house chatting about stuff. Thank you, Dave. Checks in the post. Thank you so much. <laughs> so, um, tell me. Uh, let's let's start with your your book. You've got a book out. I have. I've been meaning to write that book for about twenty years, and it's about the deep and fundamental links between quantum mechanics and heavy metal. I'm a huge metal fan, as you know, Dave. Yes, I do. I do. So you've. Uh, this is, uh, this is partly why I wanted to get you on the Aussie Floyd podcast, because obviously it has a link with uh, music. I'm holding the book. The book's called When the Uncertainty Principle Goes to Eleven. For those who don't know, that's a Spinal Tap joke, isn't it? It is my favourite film. <laughs> or How to Explain Quantum Physics with Heavy Metal. But not just heavy metal. I mean, any music would... would any music, but actually with metal, in terms of how the guitar is played and sort of how you damp the strings and the chugging... Similarly, how the drums are played, in terms of the different effects that are used, marsh pits. There's a there's a, there's a lot of particularly with metal. There's a lot of links, but yeah, you're right. It's broader. Quantum mechanics is a physics of waves. Music is a physics of waves. So those links are natural. Okay, so let's start at some basics. I'm going to pretend that I know absolutely nothing about anything here, which actually won't be that hard in some <laughs> circumstances. Tell us about. A brief overview of what is quantum mechanics before we marry it to the music. Oh, wow. Um, okay, so, so many hours have we got. Um, that, so one thing is we don't fully know. That's where to start is um, there are about 25 different interpretations of quantum mechanics out there, and that's because there are a lot of unanswered questions, which sometimes is seen as a deficiency. Sometimes, you know, when scientists don't know the answer, it's apparently a deficiency. But actually, that's what science is all about. If we knew all the answers, I'd be out of a job. Every scientist would be out of a job. Quantum mechanics is the physics of the, the ultra-small, what happens when we get down to the atomic mole molecular level and down to single particles, down to electrons. All of chemistry, effectively, is quantum mechanics because what's chemistry? <coughs> it's to do with how atoms bond and how electrons interact. So although it's all about those fundamental particles, everything around us in the universe is made up of atoms and therefore, at that level, quantum mechanics affects everything you know, in the universe. But it's fundamentally a physics of waves because when you get down to that, that level, you've got to take into account the fact that bizarrely, and it is bizarre, matter starts to behave as if it's got wave-like characteristics. Now, the subtlety here, and it's an important subtlety that's glossed over sometimes, it's not that electrons or atoms or molecules become waves. It's, like they, it's that they start to behave like waves. And the wave aspect of it is that you have something called the wave function in quantum mechanics, which when you do something mathematical to it, let's put it that way, you can convert into a probability. And that wave 
is a probability wave and it tells you about the probability of finding the particle in different locations in space and time, basically. That, in a nutshell, <laughs> is so, the core essence of quantum, So at can least. I, I give a, a, an analogy here that, that the way I see, particularly the uncertainty bit, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Imagine you've got a camera on a tripod that's nice and still, and you've got a car that's driving past. And you take a picture and the lens opens for a second and then shuts again. You're going to get a really blurry image. But you'd see, you could, from that photo somewhere, kind of say, the the car kind of starts here and it ends here and we know that that's been open for a second, therefore we could make a reasonably accurate prediction on the speed of the car. But we don't know where the car is because the photo's blurry. That's kind of it. And then if you take a really, really fast picture of the car, you open it for a millisecond, you're going to see the car and it's going to be sharp and you know exactly where the car is but you don't know how fast it's moving because there's no blur in it. Yeah. Okay, so that that's an interesting analogy. But Tell me how I'm wrong. Right. So there are aspects of that that are, you know, sort of getting some essence of it, but I guess the fundamental issue with that type of explanation, if you, mm. I hate putting it this way, um, is that it, it reduces the uncertainty down to some deficiency in the measurement. And that's not it. So we obviously, you know, in physics or in any science, we can only measure to a certain precision. But with the uncertainty principle in quantum, and it's the problem is it's not painted like this, it's always painted in terms of, as you say, a deficiency in the measurement. With the uncertainty principle, it's built in. Mm. It's just built, even if we don't make any measurement, it's built in. And the reason is this, and it's relatively straightforward, is that if, you know, if we're, well, you're a musician, I'm a um, very, 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 very amateur um how can I put it? Musician. <laughs> not musician. Gu- not musician. Definitely not. Yeah. Um, you enjoy guitar. But yeah, th- that's it. I enjoy guitar. Um, it's because it's a it's a, a theory of waves. The best way to think about it is what are the fundamental properties of waves. And the thing with the uncertainty principle, although it's always coupled together with the you know quantum side of things, it's not really a quantum. It's not. It's a quantum effect, but only in so much as quantum is all about waves. So the best way of to sort of describing it is if you've, you're familiar, Dave, and I think probably some of the listeners will be familiar with the idea of a frequency spectrum. So we've got a whistle. And actually, if you whistle a note, it's as pretty close to a pure sine tone as you're going to get. Mm-hmm. And if we let that go for, you know, a very, very long time, then what you have when you look at the frequency spectrum is you'll have a, a good single spike in that frequency spectrum. So to put it in terms of what people might understand... Um when you're using iTunes or Windows Media Player or you've got a hi-fi that's got a, a, either a, some sort of visual graphic mm-hmm. EQ where you can see the see the picture going up either on the right-hand side or the left-hand side, with boomier things it will come on the left-hand side and with, with whistly, trebly things it will come up on the right-hand side Perfect. and, and, and it, it, yeah, it produces a nice pretty picture along. But Perfect. This, this is actually correlating to the sound. Absolutely. But, so on the left-hand side... Those are the lower frequencies, so the uh, and at the top end, at the very high, you know, frequencies, they're going to appear on the right hand side. So if we whistle, I don't know what that whistle would be, five hundred hertz, something like that. So the, the the wave repeats five hundred times a second. That's a really sharp. If you were to put that on a spectrum analyzer, as you say, to look at it on iTunes or whatever, you would see just a single. You would see a sharp peak. Mm. So something that's wide in time is narrow in frequency. Yes. But if I do this. Yeah. Now the issue is, what's that frequency? And but imagine you don't even have a full cycle of the wave, so it's so incredibly short. What's the frequency? Now this is not a deficiency of the measurement. Hmm. What you'll find is you put that on a spectrum analyzer and you look at the frequencies that make that up, the waves that make them up and how they mix. What you'll find is that's much broader in frequency. So hmm. wide in time, narrow in frequency, short in time broad in frequency. So, or the other way of putting that, if we have a great deal of uncertainty about how long it lasts, we have a damn, a great deal of certainty as to the frequency. If we have a great deal of uncertainty, uh, a great deal of certainty with how long it is, because we just, we know it's got to be within a half a second or whatever, as opposed to 10 seconds or whatever, then what we find is we've got more uncertainty in the frequency. If you were getting the circle and you were plotting the points to do a Fourier transform, and if you've only got a small bit of data and you take the averages and you find your 
point, it's going to be less precise because you've got less data. Precisely. And, and then you, you add more data in and you get more of a definite yeah. peak and the other bits cancel Absolutely. out. Because effectively, you need lots of noise to cancel out all the noise so that averages down to zero. The less you have of it, the less noise there is to average down to zero and the less points there are to average up to, a, to an exact sort of vector or... But that's probably far too technical for but this But actually, podcast. you mentioned... Uh, you, <laughs> you, you mentioned... Um, that that important word, which is Fourier. Apologies to anybody who speaks French, because that's an awful mangling in my Irish accent of F O U R I E R. Do you want to try and pronounce it, Dave? Maybe you can do a better. Fourier. Fourier. That's Fourier? it. Yeah, that sounds Fourier? a bit better then. Yeah. So to me, it just comes out as F U R R Y Fury. Um, so, but the the genius of that man, genius of that bloke, was that he showed that any pattern in time. Okay, mathematicians make it a little bit cross, but any pattern that matters to a physicist, let's put it that way, can be broken down just into adding up sine waves. Time series data. Yeah. Which is, for example, a a wave that's audio. So let's say you're listening to your favourite song and the speaker is physically moving in and out, which is causing vibrations in the air. Mm Mm-hmm. But the speaker's not moving in and out at a constant rate, otherwise that would produce just a single frequency. It's, it's producing lots of frequencies, which is why you've got bass guitar and snare drums Precisely. and stuff happening at the same time. Um, and when you look at that, it can look like a big mesh of nonsense. I mean, it just you look at that and go, well, how am I ever going to work out? And we're not going to go into how it works. I mean, you explained it to me wonderfully in your office the first time <laughs> I came up to Nottingham and, and met you. Thank um, you, you explained it to me, and, and, and it's lovely. It's a beautiful piece of mathematics which basically turns this complicated wave system with, with loads and loads of different frequencies and loads and loads of different sounds into components. So it's a bit like looking at a house and going, wow, how's that built? And then you've got this formula that can turn it all into its individual bricks and pieces yeah. of cement, and then you, and it's almost like it gives you the shopping list. That's exactly And then you it. can go and rebuild it. Yeah. And, and, and you don't need to know any more than that for, for this, but that's... Yeah, that's no, that's a great way of describing it. And, um, you know, anybody who's played with a bass or a treble knob on a hi-fi or has changed a graphic equaliser at any point, you've effectively been doing Fourier um, synthesis or Fourier analysis because you've been changing the frequencies that make up the, the sound. So every time you go to a graphic EQ and, and, and or in a car when people add more bass yeah, or something yeah, yeah, and you yeah. hear them at the traffic, it's like yeah. boom, boom. Yeah. And yeah. So wait, when you say adding more bass, if I translate that to a physicist language, we're increasing the lower order Fourier components. That's okay. how we put it. The, this is key for so much of physics including in particular quantum mechanics, is that, you know, we can have a wave or we can have a pattern, we can look at it in time, but we can also look at what we call it as a conjugate variable. I don't want to get too technical here, but <laughs> we can look in frequency as well. So you can take exactly the same signal and just look at it in two different ways. It's why we plot graphs. Now, for example, you could just have a table of numbers, right? Mm. And you look at that table of numbers and it's a jumble. But you represent that as an infographic or you represent that as a graph and suddenly it, it springs alive. Similarly, as you said, you can have this incredibly complex signal coming out of your speakers. But then you look at it in terms of the frequencies that make it. I mean, it suddenly starts to make sense. So our ears are effectively, naturally, they take the vibration of the air or whatever medium you I suppose underwater it's, it's a medium. But mm-hmm. vast majority of the time it's the atmosphere. They vibrate with the... Uh, with the air, mm-hmm. and then effectively somewhere along the line, our brain is performing a Fourier transform of some sort, and then we're getting that shopping list of data and saying, that's that guy, you know, saying hello to me. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's remarkable. <laughs> it's quite what amazing. Been, but also in terms of just the raw, as well as the raw physics, and sometimes physicists get a little bit sniffy about this and they think about other disciplines as perhaps not being quite as... Um, uh, rigorous as physics, which does piss me off a little bit. Um, but one thing is it's psychology, for example. There's so much done, so much processing in the brain in terms of filling in the gaps, not just in terms of visually, but also in terms of audio. For example, you can be played, uh, you know, something that sounds like absolute noise. There's a great example of this. I'll send you the link later, Dave. Um, you can be played a sample that sounds like absolute... etc. Right, yeah. And then you're told what's actually what the, what the voice is saying. And then you go back and listen to it, and suddenly it's crystal clear. Hmm. So your you, your brain, you know, really works on whatever the prior information is. Sounds like the uh, Google Deep Dream picture stuff, where 
We'll talk about that later. Okay. <laughs> I, I want to get back to the book. So to paraphrase... Uh, paraphrase the uncertainty principle over to you thank you Dave. so with the uncertainty principle so I've explained it in terms of frequency and time but it also works in terms of position and momentum and the reason this is this is really strange because you'd think in terms of uh, you can I guess we're used to thinking in terms of waves in time but you can also have waves in space and for example, a zebra crossing is a really good example where you've got some, some with a certain <clears throat> period, it goes black, white, black, white, black, white. You can make up any picture, just the same way you can make up any sound from a collection of waves, you can make up any picture from a collection of waves. And with quantum mechanics, we've got this really important relationship due to a guy called De Broglie with a really simple equation. Can I just have one equation, Dave? Go on, you Just can. one equation. No, no, I'm, not, I'm not Brady. I'm not against the equations. Uh, he, he seems to dislike the maths. I, I love the maths, so go for it. So we've got a really simple equation, which is P, which stands for momentum, mm. is equal to H, which is Planck's constant, which is an incredibly tiny number, which is why quantum mechanics, we don't all act like waves in the big bad world, divided by lambda. So that means that the momentum of something is where lambda, I should stress, is wavelength. So that means the momentum of something is related to its wavelength. Yes. Right? And once you're down at this quantum mechanical level, particles behave as if they're like waves. So we've got waves in time, but all the stuff that we've talked about in terms of waves in time is also portable down to quantum mechanics in terms of waves in space as well. How does this fit in with music in terms of your book then? The, the heavy metal guitar. Let's get to that because I'm hoping we haven't lost too many people with a, with a, <laughs> with a, with a physics chat here. So, so yeah. So really, um, it's a shame we should be should pick up a guitar. That'd be good. Um, I've got one here. Yeah. Um, good. So <laughs> it's, it's not plugged in, but uh, that's I can okay. hold it up to Let's the see. mic. Can it, yeah. oh, okay, go. good. <laughs> so just let a, a, a string ring out, Dave. Okay, so there's a very good example of, of a note that persists for a long time. There you go. And that is made up of a number of different waves. And if we look at its frequency spectrum, we'll see that its frequency spectrum is made up, you know, in terms of the frequencies that make it up, there's, there's, there are fairly sharp bands, fairly sharp peaks that make up that frequency spectrum. Now, if you just chug, like, or, you know... Yeah, we really need that amplified. <laughs> There we go. Where you damp the you damp the strings with your hand. What's called palm muting. Palm muting. Guitar. So so if you were playing a metal, if you sort of like perfect, sort of doing that, something like that. Perfect. So where you, and metal, that's you know when metal and rock palm muting like that is is so key. Now the difference there is when you let the string ring out, it's exactly that that idea where you've got a, a wave that persists for a long uh, period of time. When you damp the strings, you've got uh, a wave that lasts for a short period of time. And lo and behold, if you look at the spectrum, the frequency spectrum, in the first case, you'll see that you've got a sharp peak. In the second case, you've got a, you'll see that you've got a much broader peak. So wide in time, narrow in frequency, short in time, broad in frequency. And that's the uncertainty principle in action. And no, we've not mentioned anything about any measurement tool or anything being blurred, etc. So it's just about waves. what you're saying is, uh, again, to, to paraphrase and... and Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not trying to tell you what you're saying. I'm trying to make sure I understand sure, it sure, here. Sure. So, so let me let me get this right. The longer you leave a note to ring, yeah. the more you know about what note it is, and the more, but the less you'd know about if you just took a random sample of it, how long it's been ringing for. Precisely. But if you do a real quick, like a. Yeah. on the guitar and you palm mute something and you play a really really quick note you know loads about how long it lasts uh, you know when it started when it finished all of that but you can say with less certainty that it's an a or an e or, a, or whatever note it is yeah yeah that, that's that's a good way of putting it i think the only the only quibble i'd have and we could go back and forth on this i guess for days is that is this idea about you knowing the info sort of having an information element of there mm. because it's just naturally the physics is such that you know if you have the string ring out the and you the just I, due to the i the do mathematics, get what you're saying but i'm trying to put it in a way that, that i mean Really, people need to read the book, don't they? <laughs> they need possibly. to read the book. Uh, yeah. <laughs> possibly. Don't say possibly. It's, it's, <laughs> it's great. And, and, and the presentation of it as well. I mean, uh, so, so tell, tell us about the guy who did the yeah, illustrations so, for so it. The, so the guy is Pete McPartland, and I cannot sing Pete's praises enough. So he did the illustrations for the book. He works closely with Brady Harron on a number of different um, YouTube channels, including... 
I think he does most of his work, the vast majority of his work for Numberphile. Mm. And he's just a really quirky artist. And <clears throat> moreover, he could translate my garbled, you know, paragraphs of, I'd like something like this, Dave, which looks a bit blurry over here. And then over here, it looks a bit sharper. And Because he's got a very unique style. He that has. reminds me of... Uh, oh, oh. How can I put it? Like a graffiti version of Gerald Scarf. Oh, wow. I, well, I <laughs> think that's that's a good way of putting it, absolutely. Um, uh, quite whether Pete would agree, I don't know. But yeah, that's well, that's what it's... You yeah. can play it to him and he can disagree with me. <laughs> and I can say art is all subjective. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was... That, that's that's not an insult. I mean, I love Gerald Scarf. Sure, sure, he, he yeah, did yeah, some yeah. wonderful work. And, and um, it's so beautifully beautifully presented the whole thing is is this your your first published book i mean i know you've written many papers but it is it is the first published and certainly saw the pop side i actually there's a quote from the, a guy called jesse silverberg who did um the physics paper with the best title ever which is uh collective dynamics of humans in marsh pits for physical review letters, which is arguably the most prestigious physics journal. But what I like is they've got a quote. We've actually got a quote, as you know, Dave, from your good self, Dave, at the back here, which is nice. Thank you. Oh, um, but um, forget pop sigh, this is metal sigh. So I quite like that. That's from Jesse Silverberg. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, it's the first book I've written. I've been meaning to do it for 20 years or so because it's fun to watch... First year and second year and third year and fourth year students wander into a lecture theatre in a variety of metal T-shirts. There's a very, if you draw a Venn diagram of physics, um, of physicists and heavy metal and hard rock fans, there's a vast amount of overlap. In I that. would say the same is true of computer science as well. I would say that too, yes. I think it's these kind of geeky, technical subjects that um, that somehow lend themselves to complex music yeah. because... If you're if if you're someone who's advanced in computing or, or physics or something like that, you're really not going to be getting off on the latest Britney Spears tune. <laughs> no, I, 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 I'm generalising, but I, that's that's what I would imagine. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a fair comment. The interesting thing is, I spent I think I might have told you this before, Dave, but I spent the first two years of my physics degree going should have done computer science because. Um, I'm not the best of mathematicians at all, and I was always drawn towards computer science. Um, See, you're the only person I've ever seen in any, you know, in any of these educational channels who's said, I get a complicated bit of maths, and it doesn't, again, I'm paraphrasing here, but um, it, it doesn't feel natural to me, so you write it out in code, like it's a computer program. Yeah, that's how I got through my degree. And that resonate again it's one of those moments i'm there watching i'm going shit that's ex that's exactly it's the only way i can understand it because when you um well i was lucky enough to bit to to be in your office um whenever it was i can't remember it was at the end of 2016 <sighs> or something like that and you you were there with a old school piece of chalk <laughs> and you were writing out the fourier transform to the formula and i look at it and i'm going just so many symbols here there's so many different and that's that and then i'm breaking it apart and i'm going well that bit there's a loop so i want to put mm -hmm. that on different lines and that's going to go around and then we're going to and suddenly the whole thing springs to life when i put it over yeah. 10 lines yeah. rather than it all being one now mathematicians seem to have this love for taking something which it, to me reads beautifully in 10 lines and want to fit it on one line with symbols to, it's, it's almost like they're they're they want to zip it up. Yeah, yeah. No, or I think compress that's... it, and and to me that's confusing. Yeah, yeah. No, that... why do they do that? <laughs> it's it's because for them it's a, it's you could argue as well. Why do physicists? You know, if you look, other scientists looking at a physics paper would say that's impenetrable. I would look at sociology papers and say an awful lot of that's impenetrable. I would argue that in many cases it's completely. Um, uh, willful obscurity and obviously you need to have the background to be able to interpret that the problem is if you if you it's it would be like taking a piece of code for example yeah. and saying well why did they use this this high level language and we've got all these different languages why don't we just write everything in assembly and then everything's completely clear but the problem is is the baggage that's associated yeah. with writing everything right down in terms of the hexadecimal or whatever so it's a question of language and it's a question of um yeah working language and yes there's a lot of jargon but um uh, 
that jargon's important, I guess, to allow physicists to communicate. But the problem with that is then is that it locks out a lot of people who'd like to understand. Mm. But, but you the- were the first person that I ever saw, uh, you know, on a YouTube channel as a as a professor going, this is how I get to understand I'm stuff. Glad. And I thought, so it's not the stupid man's way of doing it you know it's, it's a legitimate way to, to kind of unpack this and yeah. work out and what's going on in fact increasingly you'll see you know you might think uh you know a programming company or you know a gaming company or whatever you know wants to appoint somebody who's going to write code who are they going to appoint a computer scientist or a physicist actually in many cases what's happening is that the physicist is getting uh, getting the, the gig because the physicist is trained in terms of not so much formal logic, which we're not good at, what the computer scientists are, but what we are good at is taking a physical system and coding it. You know, taking a real-world system and thinking about what, how do we take the Newton's laws, for example, and how do we actually translate those to a piece of code? And that's a very important skill. Mm. Well, I, I, there's all sorts of quantization problems, I'd imagine, that would... would. Well, <laughs> that's interesting. So that's another interesting point. So we obviously in... in um, in physics land, in mathematical land, we have infinitesimals, so the, the smallest and the smallest thing ever, which in computing land we can't have, and that's that's and we have it's discrete maths rather than um, analytic maths. This principle that we talked about, going back to the book with guitars, mm-hmm. um, you can see it in guitars, but does it work on pianos, drums, yeah. everything? Tell, everything. Tell, tell us about that. Everything across. So if we're talking about the uncertainty principle, that's that's just a principle of waves, and therefore it's everywhere. So yeah, pianos. Guitars, drums, but also any image or any um, structure that you see, you can break it down into this combination of waves. So the way I approach it, so um, one question I like to ask when we are visiting, uh, when uh, we're interviewing A-level students to see whether they um, are, you know, when they've applied to Nottingham as part of the, the UCAS process, as we call it here, is, you know, if I play a middle C and guitar and you play middle C and piano, it's a middle C. Look at the music notation. It's a middle C. Why do they sound different? What is it about the, the you know, ultimately what is it about the wave? And it's about how you add up all those different sine waves. In one case, although the 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 note itself is a C, if you look at the waveform, although it might repeat, you know, I don't know how many um, hundred times a second, the shape of that waveform on guitar would be very different from the shape of the way from a piano. So the analogy to that would be, in, in music, we'd describe that as, as timbre, or, 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 or if I'm pronouncing that word right. Or, and, and, and I hear people talking about the warmth of a sound, yeah, or the yeah. depth of the sound, or the harshness of a sound. Or, yeah. And effectively, that's the non-scientific... So if you pick up if you pick up the guitar, Dave, again, we go. let's right. do it. So have you got a plaque? Um, I, I, you, you had, oh, I, I I've have, got hundreds of them yeah. here, but um, I've, you've I've actually got it. one that's in, in your pocket. It you? is, I there you go. Earlier. Yeah, it's all right, you can there have it back in a minute. Right, so, so, <laughs> play, so if you play down towards the bridge, play yeah. something down towards the bridge. Fairly tinny, fairly tinny. Yeah. Actually, yeah, pick a note, it's probably best if you... If you, if you yeah, okay. You, okay, so I'm going to play something on the G string. Yeah, so, so something like... Yeah. Uh, play. There we go. Now move it towards the, the neck. Do you hear the difference between the tinniness and the and the warmth? And that's largely because you're just exciting different waves. You're so, exciting different waves so, on the string. So let's say uh, most musicians will know the expression A440. Mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. won't necessarily know what it means, but it basically means that the air is vibrating at 440 times per second. Second, yeah. Which is... You'd say that's quite fast, but actually we can hear up to about 22,000 times. 20,000. 20,000, okay. Well, I can't. My top end of my hearing... I've gone. Babies can hear up to about 22,000, then it it goes downhill from there. Where are your plugs, kids? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we use in-ear monitors in gigs, and then we just whack those up, (laughs) and then I'm just killing my hearing more. But um, So A440 is 440 times per second and, and so that's an a so it's a so if you play that a on the piano mm-hmm. or you play that a on the guitar the the frequency that should be the the biggest constituent of the lot is um is 440 hertz mm-hmm. now you will have because the string naturally bends backwards and forwards you will have a bit of 439 and a bit of 441 and, and that will go up and down which but we but don't then, need to worry but too then much you'll about. also have 
um, doubles and halves of it. So 440, you'd have 880, am I right? Mm-hmm. And then you'd yeah, have yeah. 220 and 110. And so we'd, we'd call it, these are called harmonics. So these these multiples of the, of the frequency are, are called harmonics. And that's ultimately what this guy Fourier showed, <coughs> is that when that string vibrates, you know, if you write down, you can write down an equation which describes the motion of the spring, of the string. I'm not going to go into what that equation is. But... What's the what are the, the the constraints on the on the string? Well, it's pinned at the bridge and it's pinned at the nut, mm. which means it can mo- m- vibrate in multiple different ways. With the only constraint is that it doesn't move at the bridge and the nut. So there are multiple ways you can get it to vibrate, and it's the mixture of all those multiple ways that it can vibrate that gives you all those different harmonics. So four forty, eighty, eighty, whatever. So effectively, 13, if third, I'm picking 20. it by the neck pickup rather than the bridge pickup, if I pick it by the neck pickup. Um, the, the, effectively, the mix of those harmonics is completely different to, to even though 440 might be the, the biggest one yeah. still all the way through, it's the mix of the 220, Precisely. the 110, the 880, and the chain. So there comes a point where if I pick it right near the bridge or by the nut where, where um, it can't move as much. It, the important thing is that when you pick the string there, that wave, what you're doing is you're sending a wave in one direction and you're sending a, a wave, you want to think of it as a little pulse in the other direction, and it's how those interfere that sets mm. up the motion of the string. So um, the, 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 the key point here is that, that mixture of harmonics is, as you said, coming back to what you said about timbre, is defining the timbre of the note. Okay. And it's it's interesting that that musicians have a language to describe the same thing as physicists. Yeah. Um, and effectively, we're both describing the same thing in in different degrees of accuracy. Yeah, but the the, the I guess the the thing then is how does that connect, or how does that all that music stuff actually connect right down at the atomic level? Because what you find is that you can. We're now at the point where we can build little strings, but strings made out of atoms. And if you look at how electrons are actually trapped within those strings, much of the same physics, much of the same maths translates all the way down to that atomic level. Okay. And when you're not talking string theory here. Just no, so I, no, I know good point. Not, but, We're not talking string theory. When you say strings, I just want to clarify for people. Rows of atoms. This, this, yeah. is, this, is not, this is more like a physical string than a... Than a yeah. Yeah, the conceptual string. Conceptual or, string. Is it a real physical string? Well, there's an interesting question. <laughs> yeah, that's, we're not in 11 dimensions now, even though this book does go to 11. It so, does, But yeah. not, dim- <laughs> not dimensionally. Yeah, so, I mean, it, that's that's amazing. So you can get this principle out of, and, and the same would be true if you muted a piano string, you get the you get the same thing. Exactly, and you, and yeah. If you muted a snare drum, if you had a dampening, people back in the day used to, used to have a cigarette packet. They'd... Uh, They'd um, gaffer tape down on the side. So when they hit the snare drum, it would bounce up to let it ring and then it would come back down and dampen ah. the drum. And there was all these techniques of that rather than tea towels on drums. And yeah, yeah, yeah. people did. I mean, I, I'm... Sticking I towels in bass yeah, drums. I, I don't like it. I, well, a bass drum, fair enough, but I don't really like that on, on drums because to me that means you just haven't tuned it properly. If you tune <laughs> it nicely, it's going to... But there's a lot of old kits, if you go back to the 60s and 70s, that didn't actually have enough lugs to do a correct oh. tuning of a skin so back in those days they were just covering them with gaffer tape and if you listen to a lot of those old drum sounds i mean they they are a drum kit recorded with two mics in a small room that's covered in tea towels um so how does this link in at all i a while back i gave you some files of our drummer oh, bonnie doing some uh you boom did. splatting on and another I, brick in the wall part you two. did thank you for raising that dave actually that's quite your <laughs> that's so on my list i've got a list of things to ask you wonderful so. so yeah so that that stems from a 60 symbols video we did um oh a long actually it's disturbingly not it's almost three yeah almost three years ago now and in that we were asking the viewers to contribute drum tracks. And so it was based around a paper that had been published in a journal called um, PLOS back in 2015. And what they'd done there is they'd taken a track f- uh, from Jeff Percaro, fantastic drummer. You're probably mm. even more familiar with Jeff Percaro than I am, um, Dave. Played in Toto. Indeed, yeah. Just Amongst others. In terms of groove, was just an incredible drummer. And... Um, 
So some a Michael McDonald track called I Keep Forgetting, which some of you out there might be familiar with. A bit poppy, but it certainly grooves, not entirely to my taste. But Picaro plays this um, 16th note pattern, but he plays it single-handed. And it's a really... They describe it as a the virtual ra- performance. Is it the Rosanna beat as well? The, the shuffle, the Rosanna shuffle is incredible. It's not that. It's not that. It's not that. It's a more straight-ahead 16th note pattern. But it's the it's the dynamics on the hi-hat where instead of doing a double hand as an awful lot of drummers would do he did it single-handed and Procaro says that he much preferred to um, to use a single-handed mm. so we've, we've switched from technical um, physics to technical music but he, <laughs> he much preferred to play it that way and so they did an analysis of this and what they're particularly interested in is um, groove and how that um, is linked to correlations in the beats so you know in terms of if you just play something like a drum machine so it's always on the beat it sounds really terrible I guess unless it's industrial music or whatever where you can get away with it alternatively if you play something which is just all over the place random then it's it's that also sounds really bad in there but there's a happy middle ground like a Goldilocks zone between complete randomness and complete order and uh, in terms of the correlations, they wanted to analyse that. And it relates actually to something called 1 over F noise, which we'll not go into, but it, again, relates to frequencies. But you can tie this type of um, changes and correlations and fluctuations. So you're basically saying Trump's with that, beat. the higher the frequency, the less the error is. Uh, well, no, it's about how you, again, how you break down a signal into its component frequencies. Mm. And so how you mix those frequencies together to get you something which is completely ordered or something that isn't, um, right. you know, is, is much more correlated on, you know, in terms of does what he plays now in terms of the beat, does that affect so what he you, does? are you measuring, let me get this right, are you measuring the accuracy of the position of the drums against, so, so basically how close he is to the click track. That's exactly it. So, you so actually the faster it's going to be, the more likely, the less it's going to deviate from the click track because physically it's harder to deviate. And then the slower it is, there's more your, leeway around it. Is, your intuition might might lead you to think that way. So, the, 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 <laughs> so I'm wrong. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mind being wrong. Don't get me wrong. No, I'm, I'm happy no, to be wrong. There are elements in that. And actually, that's that's what we sort of thought when, when initially. So their argument is that Procaro plays in a particular way and there are particular fluctuations. So we were very keen to see, well, if we take a lot of other drummers, do we actually get the same type of effect as you see with Picaro? Is it a universal thing? And moreover, could you actually, once you look at these fluctuations and once you look at the spectrum, could you use that, you know, to program a drum machine so it would sound like a particular drummer? And so we we got a lot of um, uh, 60 Symbols viewers to send us the tracks in. We analysed those. We also got a lot of drummers in, in Nottingham um, to contribute and we analysed the tracks. Note, how did it go with the request for people sending stuff in? Because generally I found when you ask someone to send something in and you say, please make it like this, they will do everything they can to make it not how... <laughs> yeah, to be fair, I should have been a little bit more... Um, Definitive in what I asked for, but we we did say that we were interested in the the hi hat track. We got quite a lot of recordings where they seem to have put the microphone down by the bass drum, so all you can do is boom, boom, which is very very difficult to analyse. But having said that, there were a few that actually did did give us good hi hat tracks, and then we also did our own recordings, and it was based around. And I think this was a mistake. It was based around actually not that Picaro track, but I'm a huge Rush fan. I'm actually sitting here in a Rush T-shirt, as Dave can see. Um, a track by Neil Peart, which is uh, by Neil Peart, by Rush, with Neil Peart's standard signature drumming, incredibly virtuoso drumming, called Tom Sawyer, which I'm guessing quite a few Floyd fans will probably be aware of. Um, There's a fantastic live version of that where they had a uh, South Park doing, oh, uh, doing yeah, the, yeah. The, the the intro, and uh, <laughs> and then the band just start up. I'd, 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 yeah, check that out. That's, that's really good. Um, which, unfortunately, is a bit of a... Tr- even Pert himself says it's a real pig of a, of a drum beat to play because it's, it's 88 beats per minute, 16th notes, and staying, keeping that up for the entire track is actually uh, also a matter of stamina, I would say. So perhaps we didn't choose the best one, but we got some data out. We've got that paper. It's finally submitted. Actually, it's out at review at the moment. But what we did there was analyse a load of drummers. The better thing to have done, and what we're keen to do now, is to take a single drummer, hence Bonnie, 
from Aussie Pink Floyd and analyse their drumming over the course of a number of different performances. That, this was the focus of uh, an undergraduate project, um, uh, final year undergraduate project uh, this year, and uh, hopefully be analysing that over the summer and trying to write that up. So we will be getting a paper out there based on that. Um, some interesting... There are some interesting effects already in terms of, of um, Bonnie's uh, playing. Does Bonnie get a mention in this paper? Oh, of course he will. Oh, yeah. my God. Bonnie's in a <laughs> physics paper. <laughs> oh, mate. <laughs> Go on, do the accent. No, no, no. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Not, not live on a podcast. But, um, yeah, he'll be chuffed if he, if he yeah. could read. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only jesting, Bonnie. We love you, really. <laughs> So that's being published. That's going to be well. That's not published yet, but it's it's in uh, process. Let's put it that way. The first paper is just at the review process. So the second paper, I guess, hopefully published next year or sometime. Mm. Mm. Right. So that's good. well. I'm looking forward to it because I'll I'll read it and then I'll I'll read it to him. <laughs> A bedtime I'll, reading. I'll, I'll be called nerdy with some other words on the end. I'm not going to say on this. Um, <laughs> let's let's move on. Um, I was thinking of a title. For this podcast, mm-hmm. um, I was just going to nick the uh, the title of your book and call it "When the Uncertainty Principle Goes to 11. Um But one that I'm still favouring at the moment is I wanted to call it "The University of YouTube" because oh, okay. fundamentally, anyone who knows you outside of—I mean, obviously, your students know you and, and you know colleagues of yours and other professors around the world will probably know you for, for various reasons, but. The way that the general public would probably know you is from your work on primarily 60 Symbols, which is a channel run by Brady... Harron. Harron. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how did that start? And, what, and t- Tell me a bit about that. How, what... So, Brady I've known for nearly 10 years. So, he was a BBC video journalist. Uh, he actually used to work for the Murdoch Empire in Australia, in his native Australia, but we'll, we'll, we'll put that well, on one we've side. Had, we've had some, because we had Sean... On and he's oh, told course. a bit of a, a bit of Brady's background. It's just going to be this this Brady that one day you never know. I'll get on this podcast. And everyone <laughs> will know well. everything about him already. So but, okay, so but, that's that back on. How did you get started on the channel? What 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 sparked the channel? Was it so it, the he had something called periodic table of videos, which he did with chemistry. Physics looked at that. Now I wasn't involved right at the start, but the head of school at the time in physics looked at that and thought, oh, that's a damn good idea. Can we come up with something for physics? And the idea then was something called 60 symbols. 60, well, 60 symbols because of the sort of alliteration, I guess, but also um, we had funding for 60 videos. That's how it started off. It's now uh, probably 400, something like that. So it's been it's been fairly successful. I got involved, I don't know, third or fourth video in, something like that. And yeah, because you've been in pretty I've early been in cr- on. Yeah, yeah, I think it was the third video I was involved in. So, and um, it just happened sort of organically and naturally. And I, I got on well with Brady. He and I have a lot of spats, both on <laughs> on camera and off camera, but it's very friendly. And what's great about Brady is he's he's not a scientist, but he he's incredibly interested in science and asks incredibly good questions, much like yourself, Dave. And he challenged, what I really like is he's he's changed my teaching and he's changed, you know, in the lecture theatre and outside because he asks those uncomfortable questions. It's like I do these things called pint of science and sceptics in the pub. Mm. You know, you go across the world in some technical conference and you give your presentation and you talk about your science and somebody will stick their hand up and ask, well, what voltage did you use or what analyzer did you use? Something fairly nerdy and fairly geeky. You do one of these pint of science things or you look at the, you should never read the YouTube comments, but if you do read the YouTube (laughs) comments, you'll get questions like, why the hell are you doing this? Why should I care? Which is a much more challenging question to answer, but a much more important question to answer. And um, so, yeah, I really, really enjoy doing the 60 symbols side of things yeah okay so how can i put this that that makes sense uh i'm just going to ask it in a weird way how famous are you oh i don't know if i'm uh, i don't know there's there's there's, there's we'll youtube put it like this. famous so, so for me well fa- famous is i mean because someone could be a rock star in one country and everyone know them and then go to another country and and no one's ever heard of them i mean i think about not rock star so much but i, I think about someone like robbie williams that over here in the 90s was mm-hmm. absolutely huge and then yeah. he goes to america and nobody knows him at all you sure, know sure. unless they're a british tourist and so to me someone that i don't have a tv license i don't watch any live tv I, you know occasionally i'll catch up on something if it's a specific thing but to me 
YouTube and other streaming services are my entire entertainment. Mm -hmm. More so since I've been touring because I can't get into a series on TV and then I'm away half the year. Sure, sure. Um, So these channels that that I subscribe to on YouTube are, are incredibly important to me. So therefore, someone like you, and then on number five, you know, James Grime, the mathematician on there, and then some of the guys that I'm lucky now to have met and be friends with, Dave Mike Brailsford, Pound, and, yeah. and the, I've never actually met Mike Pound, oh, okay. but um, but Dave Dave Brailsford, um, who you've you've been uh, course, twice yeah. to Aussie Floyd gigs with, and, and th- those people to me, that you guys are people I watch like TV. That's- so to me, you are. You you are famous in 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 that circle in the same way I'd watch you more than I would know who the latest character in EastEnders. So if you walk down the street, I'd recognise you <laughs> over someone out well, of Corey or EastEnders. Well, that's both humbling and unnerving, I guess, in equal so, measure. But, uh, so do you get recognised? <laughs> I do for... get recognised. Actually, it was in the the US uh, recently on a train out to Newark airport and a student comes up to me and says hello on a packed train so there are you know that's really nice and when you get an, an email from somebody you know across the other side of the world who said well they never were into physics they didn't think physics was for them they've started watching 60 symbols and now they decided to go back to, to do physics at university or whatever mm. or they dropped out and now they're saying goodbye you know that's wonderful that that is really wonderful and um yeah, that, that that it's incredibly humbling. Because you might have a smaller reach than EastEnders, but the reach oh, that think you've so. got is yeah, but okay, not that much smaller. I mean, there are videos out there of millions of views. Well, yeah, I guess okay, so, yeah. millions of views. Now, the average episode of EastEnders, I don't know, might get eight million, nine million views, something like that, and it's a one-off, and someone will watch it once, and then it's gone, mm-hmm. and they're on to the next one. Whereas a video like yours will be revisited for. Nine, ten years, and people will pass quite it scary. on to people, and and, <laughs> I, and I'm sure it is. I mean, we can we can, we can talk about that uh, in a bit, but it's the reach that you've got. Um, if you, even if it's less people, it's much more intense. Someone's not going to watch one of your videos, and it be a throwaway thing. Mm-hmm. You, there's actual real information in there that that an average, you know. 10 minutes of EastEnders probably doesn't have. And I, I'm not picking on EastEnders particularly. Mm-hmm. I, I used to watch it. I don't anymore. But it's sort of uh, like, yeah. <laughs> but I'm just uh, sort of an average TV program. So, so you, you must have th- th- those people that come up to you must be more respectful. And they're, they're not just sort of like a fan, like, oh, my God, it's from Moriarty. <laughs> you know, it's, it's more like a, a deep respect. For, you've actually given them something that's it's, worthwhile. It's nice. It's nice. It's it's um, oh, it's a little bit. Um, I don't this to say. I don't. It's difficult for me to, to 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 put this quite in the words. It's a little bit unsettling. It's really nice. Sometimes it can be a little bit unsettling, largely because it's I. You know, I'm just sitting in Brady in my office. It's not something I think that you know deserves that type of. Not adulation isn't quite the no, right word, but that, deserves that type of connection. But clearly it does resonate with people. you're putting out information, and effectively you are educating people. There's stuff that I know and many other people know now. And even if you've not gone into huge detail on the video, you might have talked about something for 10 minutes, which I've gone, that's really, really cool. I need to go and read some more that's about That's exactly that. the reaction you know I want. It, then before you know it, I'm watching uh, Leonard Susking giving a lecture on, Perfect. on of, you know, Stanford EDU, two-hour lecture on that, and I'm sitting there with my notebook following the maths. So I'm delighted because that's exactly, certainly with me, and I think for everybody else who contributes to 60 Symbols, that's exactly what we want. We've always said, though this message doesn't get out there, I don't think, half enough, and that's our fault as much as anybody else's. Um, they're not lessons, they're not tutorials, they're not classes. They are literally that. They're like a little taster. And so if you've gone, you say, what's that? And oh, that's quite interesting. I moved on. Fantastic. That's exactly what we want. The problem is there are others who go, well, you know, they didn't explain everything in five minutes. You know, we did one on, for example, why is glass transparent, which was fun, which yep. Brady says right at the start, you're not getting 10 minutes. So I, I do my best in five minutes. And then you get comments in the, you know, YouTube, which you should never read. But if you do, um, <laughs> you'll see things like, well, there's got to be more to it than that. You think? Of course, you know, it's like 30 I, hours. I, my, my first ever computer file video with Sean, I explained the basics of uh, analog digital conversion. And... Um, it's not a particularly difficult subject, and I explained what bit depth and you know sample rate were, and and went through and explained. You do that, and you turn it to numbers, and I drew out the stuff. And it was a short video, which was a setup for the for the next video, mm-hmm. and it was 
perfectly reasonable. And I've joked to other people who said that's perfectly reasonable. And then I looked at the comments. And I thought, he didn't go into the Nyquist limits. And he didn't do that. And I think to myself, my God, what do you want from a short video? Exactly. And so the last one I did for Computer File, which was about MIDI. Uh, sorry, Sean, but I haven't actually even watched it. And I haven't looked at the comments because I, I just don't. Yeah. No, if I'm, Sean I, says it's all right yeah. and it's and it's helped someone out there in the world Absolutely. and they know a bit more about that, then that's yeah. fine. But yeah, you can't get into... So I used to, I'll be brutally honest, and Brady told me not to do it and all my colleagues told me not to do it. They who are of the opinion that YouTube comments are nothing more than the condensed collective stupidity of humanity condensed in one place. <laughs> um, but I used to, I would say, and we've talked about this before, Dave, I would say I probably over the years wrote, 500,000 words in, com in comments and responses to comments alone, which is, given that this is under 100,000 words, that's five or six books worth. What a complete not a waste of time because maybe 10% of that engagement is important, but the important thing is, you know, in those comment sections, particularly YouTube, and there's a great XKCD comic cartoon about um, YouTube comments, which you should go and look up. Um, it's, it's not about... I think the people who watch it and have your reaction, that's exactly what we want. But I think that sometimes, unfortunately, the people who are most vocal in the comments section are not the people like you. They're, they're exactly the that. People, who, people, people want, they, they want uh, an answer to something. They want to know why this is this and that's that. And there's, there's a couple of videos that I, well, there's, there's four off the top of my head that I can immediately think that are videos that I've definitely sent on to people to go where they've asked me something mm -hmm. and I've gone... Watch this. I mean, the physics woo video is is just amazing. I'm not going to... We won't get into that one now. For, for, that was for, cathartic for me. Yeah, yeah, for certain reasons. We won't get into that one now. But um, physics woo is one that I, I send around a lot to people. Um, Thank the, you. The sound of atoms bonding, which you know I actually kind of nicked and still intend to use in another song, the, the sound of the atoms bonding. Wonderful. I want to use that for a basis of a song because that's absolutely lovely. And, and you basically... Go and just Google the sound of atoms bonding, and you'll see Phil basically uh, getting the, the the I say sound, but it's kind of the, it's the resonance of a piece of metal, like a needle, um, and then he's pitch shifting it through a unit and putting it through a marsh lamp. So you're actually hearing the sound of of a, of a chemical bond forming and then breaking apart, which is that's a stunning video. Um, Thank you, Dave. Um, that was to fun to do. That was fun to do. Um, there's, there's, uh, I, I love the, uh, the negative temperatures video. Oh, right. So I have a lot of problems with the negative temperatures video because what, what people pick up on that is if, if you transcribe that, and this is a problem with an awful lot of my stuff, if you transcribe that in terms of what I'm saying, it's all over the place. Mm. I like, I like writing because I can edit and I can edit and I can edit. In terms of what I say, I think what people pick up on, and I'm not going to deny this, I'm fairly enthusiastic about things and I do have a lot of, you know, enthusiasm and a lot of passion for the subject. In terms of clarity and coherence, it mightn't always be there. Well, I, I, I was listening to a, a physicist on, uh, I've forgotten what podcast it was, um, was it Joe Rogan podcast or one of those the other day, and, um, and he was talking about the creative process mm -hmm. and uh, and he talked about uh, someone I'll come to who in a second but, but who who would basically have metal balls in his hand and try to go to sleep and then as he was going to sleep the balls would drop in a bowl and he thought if he woke himself up at that moment where he was just entering sleep that was where all his best ideas were and he spent half an hour talking about it saying it was Einstein okay and he just made a mistake it was Edison not Einstein and he meant Edison but in his mind because he's just having a conversation mm -hmm. he's like he got it wrong um and it would be so easy for someone to go, what's this guy? I know he's talking about Einstein like that. And in fact, it's Edison. And but the guy, that what the subject matter that he's talking about, he's not wrong. He just made a human error yeah, because it's exactly. a conversation. It's yeah. not an edited piece yeah. of work. And, and and I have real issues with people that, that yeah. want to pick apart things well, down the, to the... So there's a great book I thoroughly recommend to everybody called The Death of Expertise. It's one of my favourite books, not just of the last year, but ever, by a guy called Tom Nichols. And it is about that where it's, it's as Nichols describes it, it's this strange combination of, of arrogance and, oh, I, I don't know, stupidity sometimes, if I can put it that way. But it is really a question of, uh, well, I'm just as good as you. You know, it's it doesn't matter. You know, yeah. for example, I don't know, you know, when it comes to politics, economics, biochemistry or whatever, I will absolutely confess my ignorance. Some people will say, well, we've got Google now, we can do, we can look this stuff up, so we're as good as... There's only many 
hours in the day as well. To, to, yeah. to you're, you're good at the thing you're good at. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So yeah, the yeah. fourth video, which I, which I think is absolutely brilliant, is the one where you and Brady probably got the most argumentative, and it was about touching. It was, yeah, and do things ever touch? So there's a very popular video by oh god, guy called oh. Michael, Vsauce, Vsauce, yeah. um, which is that no thing's ever touched and it's uh, Michio Kaku, I think it, it originates from. And um, so my, the, the experiments we do are all about atoms coming into contact and touching and forming chemical bonds, etc. So that was one that, that hit home close to me. What I love about that video, and it is actually one of my favourites um, in terms of what I've, I've done with, vid- with Brady, is that it's exactly, it's, a conver- it's like we're having now, it's a conversation rather mm. than expert in inverted commas disseminates the information it's Brady going well no I think of it like this and then I'm coming at it from a different perspective and then Brady's coming back and fundamentally you've both just got two different definitions we have but that's um, an interesting conversation to have and this is this is where a lot of conversations I find break down is that two different people have a different definition of a word or certain words and then the conversation is derailed from day one it's almost like you've got to have a dictionary session at the beginning of the mm. conversation mm-hmm. to define things so that moving on if I say law I mean this or if I yeah. say right wing this is what I mean by right wing because someone's idea in politics particularly or, or, or religion not that I want to talk about politics or religion on this podcast but you know you or talk truth. to someone and they say or truth <laughs> or, yeah yeah that's, a, that's, a, that's another anything like that if, if, if someone's got a different definition of what right wing or left wing is yeah. Okay. Because to me, something that seems left wing might see to someone who's further left wing might seem like right wing, and then and then effectively, it's you, you enter kind of like a, a social relativity. Yeah. Which and is, absolutely, and then you end up speaking past each other. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, uh, having bad conversations, yeah. and that's kind of what I felt. But I think it was a it was a useful thing because it highlighted that, and that's the thing that I most got out of the touching thing because I think both of you were right in the language that you were using. Exactly. Um, That's exactly and, it, yeah. uh, so. So, the argument wasn't the important thing. It was more that of of how to argue and be civil. But and obviously, there's the bit at the end where Brady says, "No, we're all friends," and I now know you, and I'm sure you are. But there was a bit of an uncomfortable watching. I think of they. Is this the last it's time Phil's ever going to be on sixty? It's symbols? interesting. I, it's interesting how many people say, "Yeah, he's very angry." Don't, um, it's a bit worrying I'm that saying, I don't. No, I'm saying, no I, I'd actually say Brady came across as angry. Oh my! Oh okay. Uh, yeah, I think you were. Are you listening, Brady? You, you, you were, you were. No, because I understand where he was coming from, but I think it's it's that kind of. I don't know Brady, so sorry if you're if you ever hear this, Brady. I, I'm not. I'm not. Um, oh, I'll definitely play it to him. Uh, I'm not saying anything bad about you because I don't know you, and I, this isn't bad at all. But I work in the Australian Pink Floyd, hence it's on this podcast, and I know some Aussies. Okay, and there's there's a certain bull in a china shop approach to to to, to, to yeah, again stereotypical to, Aussie. To be fair, that that stereotype could also be applied to some Irish. <laughs> as well. Yeah, yeah. So well, I, I was I, I was going to get to that point. So you've got kind of two, but you're you're the passionate one that's got the technical description because you're thinking like physics, and he's thinking about it from a normal sort of English mm. language and, and a journalist point of view. And you've got kind of two bull in a china shops conflicting, yeah, yeah. and and of course they never actually touch because, as we know, it's impossible. To <laughs> <laughs> but what's what, what doesn't I don't know about Brady. I'm sure it pisses Brady, but what does infuriate me a little <clears> bit <throat> is you know particularly when Brady asks questions and he, he plays devil's advocate a lot and that's important though. It, it is really no it's, no that's not no that's that's not the bit that pisses me i'm delighted he does right. that but the problem is sometimes the audience just doesn't pick up on that and it's, they'll say things like why is he asking such stupid questions when he's asked those questions deliberately to point well, us even, in one even direction earlier even earlier when i gave you the analogy about the blurred car and the photo or whatever i think that explaining it with two razor blades and a laser pen and how the diffraction pattern mm-hmm. would, would be a lot better explanation. But I want to set up the semi-bad analogy because it gives you the place exactly. to go. So, that's exactly so. it. And that's exactly what Brady does all the time. But unfortunately, some members of the audience don't pick up on that sometimes. So, yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's, um, that's understandable. Well, look, we've got to... Uh, we got to about an hour on this, which wow. is great for the Aussie Floyd uh, podcast. So just to reiterate, um, Phil's book... Uh, Philip Moriarty, uh, when the uncertainty principle goes to 11, or alternative title, you could decide on which one to use, could you? Uh, How to Explain Quantum Physics with Heavy Metal. It's a wonderful book. Um, 
I've read most of it now, and um, now I've got a physical copy in my hand that I'm going to finish it off. And also check out his work on Brady's channel, uh, 60 Symbols. You've also done some stuff on Computer File, and I'm sure Number File. A little well, bit of Number File. Actually, my favourite video is actually a very close music um, collaboration with a guy called Dave Brown, who's boy in a band, right. um, where we took uh, Fundamental Constant, I've seen Golden that. Ratio. Yes, that yes. was fun. That's that's that, and that's on number file. <laughs> that's on number that, file. That's on number yeah. file. So go and check out those channels. They are really, um, uh, they're kind of life changing for me. And it's it's oh, it's well. what me and 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 some others on on the Aussie Floyd tour, when I'm sitting in my bunk and got headphones on, you know, I'm watching this guy. So yeah, check out all that stuff by Phil. And it's been a pleasure having you on this podcast. And hope to see you at a gig. Again soon. Absolute pleasure, Dave. Yeah, thank you. I can't wait to see see you play again. Wonderful. Nice As I've said before, the comfortably numb guitar solo is worth the price of entry to an Aussie Floyd gig. He's talking about the first one that Steve plays. <laughs> <not like that. laughs>